be this morning in the uh, book of 1 John, chapter 5. We're going to finish the book of 1 John this morning. We've uh, spent quite some time in it. It has been a blessing to me as we've gone through it. I trust it has been a blessing to you as well. As you turn to chapter 5 of 1 John, let me give you just a little background and summary on this. We recall that this was written by John the Apostle to a group of people that he knew well. In all likelihood, he had preached the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to them. His letter to them primarily had to do with the correction of false teaching regarding the Lord Jesus. And secondarily, he was writing to them to instruct them with regard to their covenant relationship, not only to the Lord, but to one another. The book reads more like a sermon than a letter but not so much a preacher to his congregation as a father to his children. The letter is full of affection. It is tender. It is pastoral. And it is necessary. The Apostle John is reminding the believers that he's writing to of the certainty of their salvation. He is reminding them of the fact that only in God is their life, and only in God is their love, and only in God is their light. You see, some had left the group, and they were teaching false doctrine. Heresy is false doctrine. They were heretics. A heretic is one who holds and declares religious teachings that oppose the plain doctrine of Christ in the Scriptures. These heretics were teaching that Christ had not come in the flesh, that he had only appeared to be human. John was writing to correct that satanic heresy. John was very bold. He said that these false teachers were antichrist. They denied the apostolic gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel that was preached by John and Peter and James and Paul. They claimed to have new revelation when there was none. They left and they started their own group, taking men and, with, uh, men and women with them, not only from that group, but to hell with them. This letter was John's eyewitness testimony. Let us not forget that the words that we read together this morning are the eyewitness and the earwitness testimony of the closest friend of the Lord Jesus Christ on this earth who made every step in the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ with him and witnessed the things that he said and the things that he did. John testifies to us this morning. He gives testimony under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit that the Lord Jesus did indeed come in the flesh, that he did indeed die for sins, that he was indeed resurrected from the dead, and praise God, he is indeed coming again. Let's read the text together, beginning in verse 6. Speaking of the Lord Jesus, John says, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. 
And this is the testimony that God gave us. Eternal life in this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is the word of God. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Will you pray with me, please? Our Father, we are grateful and thankful for the inspired word of God that we have read together this morning. I pray, Father, that you would bless the preaching of it. I pray that you would use it to encourage my brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray that you would use it this morning to evangelize the lost, if there are any in our midst. But most importantly, Father, I pray that you would use it to glorify the Lord Jesus, who alone is worthy. We thank you for it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. In our text this morning, verse 12 is the decisive verse. Look at that with me. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Now, there are a number of different takes on exactly what John is communicating here, and I'll leave it to you to study even greater length this afternoon or in the week to come, the, the various uh, interpretations of the things that John is talking about. But the one thing that we must understand before we go any farther is that John is speaking about life and death. He's speaking about life and death. But he's not speaking about physical life and death. He's speaking about spiritual life and death. Everlasting life and everlasting death. That is the context in which our text is set this morning. The souls of men and women and where they shall spend eternity. You know, there's a lot of things that I don't know at home, at work, in the hobbies that I enjoy, certainly in relation to the scriptures, certainly in my relation to the Lord God himself. There's a lot of things that I don't know. Both of my grandfathers, neither one of them were educated, but both of them were wise men. And they both said something to the effect of, the longer I live, the more I realize that I don't know. And as it turns out, I'm beginning to experience some of that myself. So, there are three things that we can know with absolute certainty that are in this text this morning. 
And when we leave here this morning, if you didn't know it before you came here, you'll know it when you leave. Look with me at verses 18, 19, and 20. These are bedrock foundational things that the Apostle John is declaring to us this morning by way of the text. These are absolutely true. He says that we know these things. Three times, once in each verse, he says we know, we know, we know. And the word that he uses here about knowing these things does not mean that we have come to know them by experience. It means that Almighty God has placed us in a status. Almighty God has given us this information. The Holy Spirit of God has testified to us that these things are true. Now, we experience these things, but our experience doesn't add anything to our knowledge of them. We know, my brother and sister in Christ, that these things are true. These are anchors for our soul that we can hang on to. And when you look around this world today that says that there is no absolute truth, that everything is, is relative, that I have my truth and you have your truth, you'll begin to understand that when we as Christians stand and declare these truths that John gives us this morning, it is no wonder that the world hates us. It is no wonder that the world despises us. It is no wonder that it comes home to us clearly that we are living in a fallen world. That we are locked in a struggle with satanic forces, demonic forces that have dominion over the vast majority of people that we come in contact with each day. Look with me at verse 18. John says, We know we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. John is telling us that Almighty God has made us spiritually alive. By His grace, He has distinguished us from the world around us. He has regenerated us. He has given us spiritual life. Now, brothers and sisters, this verse does not teach that we live without sin. We do not live without sin, but we are no longer slaves to sin. We are no longer slaves to sin. We no longer live under, domin under the dominion of sin. We live under the dominion of the Lord Jesus Christ, freed from sin. Not only has the Lord Jesus Christ freed us from sin, but the eternally begotten Son of God protects us from sin. John says that He watches over us, that He preserves us. God has saved us. He has given us new life. His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, watches over us and preserves us to the end. John says that Satan, the evil one, cannot touch the Lord Jesus Christ and cannot even accuse Him. That's the one that watches over us and preserves us. The eternally begotten Son of God. The eternally begotten Son of God. Watches over and preserves the Father's newborn children. Us. From the common foe so that Satan cannot lay hold upon us. That's good news. That's good news. That's the first foundational thing that John says that we know. My brother and sister in Christ. That is not just true of dear old saints of God that have walked closely with the Lord Jesus for the last 65 years. If God converted you but your bedside last night, this is true of you. At the moment that by God's grace He gives you life, this is true of you. The second foundational truth 
is found in verse 19. Look what the Apostle John says there. We know, not surmise, not hope, not have confidence, but we know that we are from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Tell that to your lost neighbor. And apart from God's grace, you know what reaction to expect. We know that we're from God. We're from God. This implies the new birth, the coming forth from Almighty God, a change of state, a new life, regeneration. Look how that's contrasted to the world. We, we have changed. God has changed us. We are moving. We are being sanctified. We are growing more like the Lord Jesus Christ. We are becoming closer and closer to God in our daily walk every day. Yet the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now we did. Each and every one of us did, but we do no longer by God's grace. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The world is stagnant, absolutely unchanging. They are enslaved. They're in a submissive state under the power of the pernicious one, Satan. Not just satisfied to go to the lake of fire himself, but taking men and women and boys and girls with him. And the whole world lies there, hopeless and helpless, despising Jesus Christ, despising the word of Jesus Christ, despising the spirit of Jesus Christ, despising the people of Jesus Christ, opposed to everything that Jesus Christ stands for, opposed to everything that Jesus Christ accomplished. Willingly, eagerly, and enthusiastically yielding themselves up to the bondage of Satan and the sin in which they are encumbered with. We know that we're from God. Praise God, that's good news. The third thing that we know absolutely is this. We see it in verse 20. We know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, He is the true God and eternal life. Think how the world responds to that truth. Jesus Christ has come. And He is here. He has given us spiritual life and He has given us spiritual understanding by His Spirit. And it is our permanent possession, my brother and sister in Christ, in order that we may know the true and eternal God. You and I are in Jesus Christ. Our faith is not just an intellectual exercise. Our faith is a relationship with the true and living God. We've been purchased by the blood of Christ, and we experience Almighty God through the Spirit of Jesus Christ. The eternal God has given us eternal life and spiritual understanding by Jesus Christ. Now, ultimately, those three truths that we know contrasted to the world simply are this, is that believers are moving toward the truth, and the false teachers are moving away from the truth. Each and every day, my brother in Christ, we are drawing closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. And each and every day, the false teachers and those that follow them are moving farther and farther away from the truth. Why is it that we are not? The same reason that there is hope 
for this fallen world. Look back up at verse 6 with me. John says of the Lord Jesus, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. As you read through that passage, we see some things that are challenging to us. 2,000 years after they were written, those to whom the Apostle John wrote knew absolutely what he meant. They had the context. They knew exactly what he was saying. I can't give you all of the nuances of what he says, but here's one thing I know beyond any shadow of a doubt. He wrote this passage to indicate to these people that the Lord Jesus Christ lived and died. He was fully human. The testimony of the water, the testimony of the blood, the testimony of the Spirit testifies to the physical birth of the Lord Jesus. It testifies to his public ministry. It testifies to his physical death. Now, the Greeks, by and large, taught that the Lord Jesus Christ was not fully human. The Jews, by and large, taught that he was not fully God. Just as there is no truth, there's no new heresy. The heresy that we deal with today are heresies that the apostles dealt with in their day. The second, third, and the fourth generations of Christians dealt with the same heresy, the same things that we deal with today. That which brought us out of the lap of the evil one and the only thing that will bring people out of the lap of the evil one is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other message. If the preaching of the gospel does not save a soul, that soul will not be saved. It's just that simple. Now, we have brothers and sisters in Christ in a number of different denominations. There are many things that we hold in common with those brothers and sisters in Christ, but there are some things that distinguish us from them by virtue of the fact that we are Baptist. There are things that distinguish us as Baptists from most Baptists in our part of the world because we are particular Baptists. The vast majority of the things that separate us are inconsequential with regard to the salvation of men's souls. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is what must be preached and it is what must be embraced with faith in order to demonstrate that God has given the new birth. What I'm about to declare to you is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ for the encouragement of my brothers and for the evangelism of the lost, for the good of all of our souls. And let me say before I go any farther that I may be considered narrow-minded and I may be considered bigoted, but so was the Apostle John. So was the Apostle Paul. These are not my words. These are their words. What I'm about to declare to you, to declare to you is the irreducible minimum that constitutes the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if a man or a woman disagrees with this, if they dispute it, if they teach any other thing, then they are a heretic and they are antichrist and they are leading men and women to hell. The Lord Jesus Christ is eternal God. He has no beginning and he has no end. He is all-powerful. He is eternal. He is all-knowing. As much God as the Father and as much God as the Spirit. He did not cease to be God for one moment, but he laid aside the glory of his Godhead and he came to this earth. He was conceived in the womb of a virgin by the power of God's Holy Spirit. He was conceived with no sin nature. He was born to her after she carried him nine months, fully God and fully man. 
as much God as the Father and the Spirit, as much human as me and you. I can't explain that. doesn't mean that it's not so. The Bible says that the Lord Jesus was tempted in all points just as we are, yet without sin. He's the one man that ever lived that did not deserve to die. He had no sin. Yet he came to this earth specifically to die, to save his people from their sins. The one who knew no sin was made to be sin for us. He went to the cross with no sin of his own, and there the Father made him to be sin for us, my brother and sister in Christ. The sins, each and every one of them, singly and individually, of every one of the people of the Lord Jesus Christ became his. He went to the cross to die as a substitute in the place of his people and as a blood sacrifice under the wrath of a holy God. The scriptures tell us that it pleased the Father to bruise him. It pleased the Father to crush him. Now, that doesn't mean that Almighty God took delight. It means that it was in accordance with the purpose of Almighty God to crush his son in the place of his son's people. As the Lord Jesus Christ hung there upon the cross, his sacrifice, his substitution, the blood that he poured out was the atoning sacrifice that satisfied the wrath of Almighty God against the sins of the people of Jesus Christ. There, the justice of God was satisfied. The Lord Jesus Christ is not only the sin bearer of his people, he is the wrath bearer of his people. Then the Lord Jesus Christ dismissed his spirit from his body and he experienced physical death. They took him down from the cross. They laid his body in a borrowed tomb. On the morning of the third day, the Lord Jesus Christ took his life back up, living proof that he was indeed who he said he was, that he was indeed victorious over sin, death, hell, the grave, and Satan. He was seen by upwards of his 500, 500 of his disciples in the next 40 days. They stood by and they watched as he ascended to the right hand of Almighty God where he ever lives to make intercession for me and you, my brother in Christ. That's bedrock gospel. We don't add anything to it. We don't subtract anything from it. If I told you that in order for that to be effective for you that you must come here and you must eat this cracker and you must drink this juice, I'd be a heretic. I'd be an antichrist. There's no salvation in this bread and in this juice. This is an observance. This is an ordinance of the church where we look back upon the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We who have experienced the grace of Almighty God look back with much gratitude to the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ lived and died as a human being and rose again as a human being. And Jesus of Nazareth, our brother, our big brother, as a human being, is seated now at the right hand of Almighty God, where he is coming from very soon to judge the living and the dead. To add anything to that 
is antichrist. To add anything to that is heresy. For those of us that have experienced God's grace, we embrace that truth of the gospel. Our belief is the evidence that God has given us eternal life. Our faith is in Christ alone, in His person, in His work alone. We, we seek to add nothing to it, nor do we seek to take anything from it. Consequently, look at verses 13, 14, 15. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Well, now that he's established that, now that we know the gospel, now that God has given us life, now that God has given us faith, what are we to do? It's interesting. Among all the things that John could have said, this is what he said. This is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. He's talking about prayer there. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. I don't know how an internal combustion engine works. I'm not going to be able to explain to you this morning how prayer works. But I get in mine and I drive it to work or wherever I'm going every morning. It doesn't prevent me from using it. John said if we pray in accordance with his will. He's not saying that we need to somehow divine what the will of God is. What he's saying here is, is that we must submit our prayers to the will of God. We ask God for the things that we need and the things that we think we need, yet we submit ourselves to the will of God. Prayer is not an argument. We're not trying to drag God's will down to ours. We're submitting ourselves in order that our will might be lifted up to God and submit ourselves to his purpose. Having talked to us about prayer, notice what John says it is that we are to do with that confidence that we have in prayer. We're to pray for our sinning brothers. Out of all the things that he could say that we needed to pray for, he tells us that we need to pray for our sinning brothers. We come to another portion of our text this morning that is debated very often. I can't give you a deep and thorough exegesis of exactly what John means here, but I do know this. He's talking about spiritual life, and he's talking about spiritual death. He says that there is sin that is not unto death. And I suspect that I've been very guilty of those over this past week, and I know you have too. Probably some this morning. He told us how to deal with those. We are to confess our sins, and God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There John is talking about the sins that we, even as believers, commit, and not just the little ones. The sin that leads to death is not divorce. The sin that leads to death is not adultery. The sin that leads to death, my dear sweet sisters in Christ, is not abortion. All of those things are sin in the eyes of Almighty God. But they are not the sin that leads to eternal spiritual death. The sin that leads to eternal spiritual death is the rejection of the apostolic gospel. There are those that hear the gospel and they reject it their entire lives. They never embrace it. They never give any evidence of faith. And if they die in that condition, they perish in their sin and they go to hell. There are those that hear the gospel preached, that God truly converts. They express their faith in Christ. They exhibit it outwardly by passing through the waters of baptism. They live a life in subjection, obedience to the Lord God, and they die in the Lord Jesus Christ and they go to heaven. 
But Angie read for us this morning that the Lord Jesus Christ himself said that there are those that hear the word of God that give evidence, they make a profession of faith, they give evidence to some large degree that they truly have been converted. But either the cares of this world or the riches of this world choke them out, and eventually they turn their back on their profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they walk away. Now notice, with regard to those folks, John says there is a sin that leads to death. He says, I do not say that one should pray for that. He doesn't prohibit praying for those who have renounced their faith in Christ and walked away. But he doesn't command it either. At one level, that's encouraging. But at another level, it's chilling. Particularly when we view this in light of what the author to the book, uh, or the author of the book of Hebrews wrote to the Hebrews in chapter 6 with regard to this situation there he said for it is impossible the technical definition of the word impossible means not possible there's no back door there's no end run the word of God says for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Spiritual life, spiritual death. My brothers, my sisters, our sins are forgiven. We are no longer slaves to sin. Jesus Christ is preserving and protecting us. Almighty God has given us an everlasting covenantal relationship to himself and his people through his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. We are the sons and daughters of the true, living, eternal God through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. John told his hearers, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Not sure exactly what idols looked like in John's day, but I suspect that for the most part you could walk up to them and look at them. There are places in the world that you can go today where you can walk up to them and look at them. I've got a good friend who spent two weeks in the nation of India just a month ago, and he said at 5 o'clock every afternoon they had a great big concrete, essentially a cement Buddha that they drug down the street, prayed to it, worshipped it. He said you couldn't, it's like 7-Elevens. He said they got little temples with all kinds of carved gods on every street corner. Those are certainly idols. Anything that we put in the place of the true and living God is an idol. I would not suspect to see any of these in most of our homes, but I know that I have a tendency to want to worship idols. Do we not? Do we not? Money, fame, prestige, power, material things, anything, anything that we put in the place of the relationship of the true and living God becomes an idol in our life. We must be on guard. We must stay on guard. We must not allow those idols to take root in our lives for the good of our souls and the glory of the one true God, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we are grateful and thankful that you, in your discriminating grace, have reached down into this world and called us out of it 
that you have given us spiritual life and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for these three certainties that John has given us to anchor us in this life in difficult times. Father, I pray that we would think on these things, the debt of gratitude that we have for your love, for your grace, and for your mercy, for the selflessness of our Lord Jesus Christ, who came and was obedient unto death, even death on the cross, in order that we might be made the children of God. Father, as we celebrate his broken body and his shed blood this morning, may you give us fresh insight. May you give us greater illumination. May you increase our faith. Father, may you increase our desire to be holy as you are holy. Father, we pray that you would use us to bring glory and honor to the Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.